This podcast is part of the Big Heads Media Podcast Network. Go to BigHeadsMedia.com for more great podcasts. Hello, welcome to episode 24 of Pints and Politics UK. So that's one off a quarter of a century, which is quite incredible, really. When I started doing this, it was just mine and Adam's political ramblings. Then it was also some of my own political ramblings, also some of Adam's, and now Gus's own political ramblings, becoming more less of a super sub, more of a, a transfer from from a very middle-class household into, uh, you know, to, to add to the diverse nature of this political panel. I mean, I do aspire to be middle class and I do aspire to have income, but, you know, Gus's £150,000 trust fund is a very difficult target to reach. But, Gus, how are you this week? Are you feeling fresh, happy? I mean, we did talk for a while before we went on air and I know fresh probably isn't the correct word given your uh, situation, but what elaborate yeah, on that too much if you don't want? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm all right. I'm as all right as I can be. He's a, he's a, uh, I think yeah. I lost my voice a little bit. Yes. Uh, from last night, but yeah, it, it is miraculously returned just in time for my uh, just in time for my appearance on the pod. Yes, well, you know, I mean, I mean, I joke about middle class heritage. I joke about trust funds and tr- uh, figures may be misleading, as I as I said before. But like many of us in the United Kingdom, we were particularly in England very very excited at the prospect of the European Championships because we were in the semi finals. Um, the football team, I might add. First time, second time England's been in a, in the semi-finals, I think. Oh, no, it might not be. I think it's the, the last time England were in the semi-finals of the European Championships was 1996. This is the first time got to a European Championship final. The last time England got to a, a major international final was 1966. So that's why Gus is not feeling too fresh um, with, the, with his vocal cords. But I think he's doing a good job now. You, you do sound better. Um, yeah, I've, I've recovered. I've had a whole day at work to... Uh to sip away at the cups of tea yeah um, fantastic to try and condition myself into being into being fresh and awake and ready well, although having said that i had a two hours sleep after i finished so yeah i mean when i used to gone some way to helping when i used to work in china we used to have two hour naps and they were fantastic in the middle of the afternoon it was quite cultural so maybe that's something we should adopt over here uh, to combat the uh, tiredness in the afternoon and late evenings. Um, seems to have done you the world of good. But onto the political side of it. I mean, that really has, has you know, without all sorts of political figures coming involved in, in the England uh, in the England extravaganza, we've had Boris Johnson pretending that he knows about football, which has been interesting. We've had half of the cabinet making football references. I think Jacob Rees-Mogg, one of the, um, I would say, more eccentric and... Um, Upper class, I might even say upper class, because he pushes that very threshold. Um, members of the, Boris Johnson's cabinet, he was also quoting John Barnes, former England footballer who did a quite quite an exciting or or interesting rap that was that was, I would say, world famous. It certainly is in the UK, and like I say, everyone seems to have been on it. And, and for better and for worse, I must add, some political pol- people, figures, politicians are big fans of football, and some quite clearly aren't which slightly annoys me at time to time. But anyway, we'll, we'll agree to disagree on that. The big story really, aside from the football this week, was the announcement in the UK that Freedom Day was very much a reality on July the 19th. Now, it was previously June the 21st. That got delayed. Now, it seems to be 
on the cards that Britain will, for one, for want of a better phrase, look to put COVID very much behind them. Now, that in brief would mean almost all restrictions are removed. Industries like the nightclubs will be allowed to open. Masks that were previously mandatory, particularly on public transport, will become voluntary. People will be encouraged to return to offices, but final decisions will be in the hands of businesses. And then on the footballing front, we've just been discussing that, particularly the Premier League and, and, and the English leagues, full capacity stadiums will be allowed, uh, something that hasn't been in place for an entire footballing season. It hasn't even been in place for the European Championships. So that's another step, full capacity stadiums packed to the rafters, which wouldn't obviously be fantastic for Premier League watchers, but particularly for any, any clubs lower down who desperately thr- uh, need the income of, of supporters. Because uh, it's a, it's a, it's an industry that's really struggled. Uh, as I say, the grassroots level, it's been decimated by the coronavirus pandemic. All that sounds wonderful. It seems like it's going to happen. But what were you? What what are your thoughts around the whole thing before we delve into the pros, cons, and the and the what ifs? Um, I'm. I'd like to think I'm optimistic about it. I would have ideally liked. Um, thinking about it perhaps us to have a little bit of a better lead into this where perhaps the cases were a little bit lower and we weren't in the middle of the uh we weren't in the middle of the point sort of in the third wave if you like where the cases are really starting to spike um it would have been it'd have been nice to sort of get this underway with you know maybe at two or three thousand cases a day in that period where there's a bit of a you've got a bit of a a soft spell where you can sort of ease off the restrictions and the cases don't go up too quickly. Um, some of the stuff I'm, I'm happy to see. Uh, so, I have to say. so the full capacity for football stadiums is, uh, is pretty good. I mean, like you said, for, for the premier league, it's one thing, but for lower leagues, it's, uh, that'll be an incredible um incredible uh be like a weight's lifted off their shoulders i think um obviously wembley's not been full yet but i think sixty thousand uh mm-hmm. was yesterday's game mm-hmm. which is getting up there with the with a full premier league stadium for at least some clubs mm-hmm. so it's already been sort of trialed um it's worth mentioning as well, I say football, but rugby uh, clubs, particularly uh, rugby league, rugby unions, also really struggled. So again, uh, for those who don't have the, many leagues don't have the television funding that the football has, it's also big for clubs of other sports and, and stadiums that, that are designed to, to entertain with other sports. It's really important for those outside of football that they also get spectators back and revenue back into the uh, into their games. Yeah, of course. Um, any sort of any sort of outdoor or at least semi-outdoor event that relies on a lot of fans, cricket as well. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. You got perhaps, perhaps football's the main one because a lot of people like it. But um, and I think it's quite easy to think, oh well, a lot of people like football, so it's very you know it's important that this is uh, is the focus. But then I think the sports that are perhaps less popular are the ones that need it more. Mm, absolutely no absolutely true particularly indoor outdoor yeah it's been the big plus with freedom day 
is the light at the end of the tunnel. I'm not even saying for people now. The first thing I'm thinking about is industries and economy. Well, we are thinking about people. We're thinking about livelihoods. We're thinking about business. We're thinking about economy, um, the economy generally in, in in particular industries that have been absolutely de- absolutely decimated. We, do, we I touched on it briefly, but nightclubs as well. Nightclubs have gone through the ringer. I'll be surprised if, you know, I won't be surprised if many of them haven't made it through to this point because they've had they've had nothing. They've been able to do nothing since basically the pandemic started in March 2020. And obviously you look at nightclubs and you think, well, they are prime hive coronavirus places, you know, that, that it's pretty impossible to put restrictions in there. So it, it shows you right, you're right at the end of the journey when you are opening that sector, you're opening those businesses, but from a financial point of view, from a livelihoods point of view, the owners of those businesses, the people, the stakeholders in that business, it's absolutely wonderful to see that there might be a lifeline there because they couldn't have survived for much longer. So 100% big thing about this is the boost it will give to people in certain industries is really important. But we talked about this as well a little bit last week, and this is generally my thought, probably your thought as well. They are the conservatives, the government, they are making this big push, this big drastic shift of emphasis from a cautious, 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 cautious to basically no restrictions, get rid of the caution, full throttle, radical uh, change of emphasis. They're doing that because too many within their own government, within that government, couldn't follow the guidance that they were themselves putting out for the public. We had Dominic Cummings last April or May, I can't remember when it was, but you know, right at the start of all of this, who obviously had the Barnard Castle incident, if you aren't aware of that, Google it. You'd probably amuse yourself. Boris Johnson has time and time again attended public events showing a blatant disregard for the rules that he had talked about quite often. Sometimes he's not worn a mask. Sometimes he's shook hands. Sometimes he's avoided social distancing. And you can see, and, and, and these are in indoor places as well. And most recently, again, I, I think I touched on this last week, uh, it was a G7 meeting with Joe Biden and, and, and the, they were meeting the Queen and the royal family. And they were all closely close together, no masks, no social distancing, while people in the back who weren't necessarily the key figures were wearing masks and remaining distanced. So again, it, it came across a touch hypocritical. And then Michael Gove going to the Champions League final, coming back and then being told he was part of a pilot scheme. So he didn't have to self-isolate like everyone else who was going to that particular game um, a few months ago. And then obviously, that one, actually. obviously, most recently, Matt Hancock being the one that broke the camel's back, essentially. The man, the health secretary, who was at the forefront of all of this, like some of the other names we just mentioned, putting those rules in place, telling everyone they had to follow them. He also broke his own rules, all the rules of the government, and also cheated on his wife in the process, and then subsequently resigned. So all of that aside, it sounded a bit long-winded, but essentially, the reason why they're being so radical now I think they didn't really have at this moment in time. How could they say we're going to prolong restrictions or we're going to add restrictions? There was no legitimacy in doing that. And they didn't have a leg to stand on, did they? No, of course not. Um, Especially since they'd effectively already extended this by a month from June the 21st. And in that time was when uh, Matt Hancock got caught... um, breaking his own rules so it's sort of like everyone else has had to everyone else has sort of had to suffer for this one month period a little bit longer but he perhaps hasn't which is 
probably the like you said the straw that broke the camel's back but it's also probably the most significant one if they were gonna say oh well we'll just extend it and see how we go and then they break the rules in that period it's kind of not fair on everyone else at all um no so i have to say the one thing i don't agree with i don't mind i don't mind uh reducing the restrictions at this point i think generally everyone who's much more vulnerable has had both doses of the vaccine the one that i don't really like at all is the masks become voluntary yeah um i think the the point of the masks was not necessarily to stop you breathing in uh uh aerosolized particles of um of saliva i guess which contain the virus but more to stop you breathing them out for other people if you were infected and i think if you start saying oh well you can wear the mask if you want to be protected that's not how the masks protect people um correct think, it's, it's to block your own germs isn't it yeah it's to it's to stop you spreading it for other people so it relies on effectively to keep you safe it relies on everyone else wearing their mask um and i don't think it's that big of a it's that big of a a, a thing to say okay well in certain situations we're going to make these we're going to make these a, a safe space because everyone has to do them right so like in a shop everyone has to go shopping so just make the masks mandatory you're not saying your butler gus to go sure. uh if by butler you mean dad then <laughs> <laughs> um yeah. my dad's been doing the shopping for yeah. for the household partly because he was the one with the most free time but also because he's the first one vaccinated uh, very good very very good very good justification but no i agree well, with you actually with that well, as well just to yeah. counter counter tag question quick to that um could there be animosity then towards people that decide to wear masks? I know in my area, um, I remember once wearing a mask, not on, just coming off public transport, forgetting it was there. And then someone from the car shouted, take that mm, mask off. Uh, and, yeah. you know, could that, that you can imagine that being a thing in certain areas. I, I can imagine that, especially uh, on perhaps public transport where there's an open debate whether, oh, if I have all the windows open, I don't even need to wear one kind of mm. thing. I feel like public transport's generally where there could be a bit of a uh, a bit of a debate whether it's really really needed or whether it's not. Mm. Um, it's it's like if you forget your uh, it's like if you forget to take your mask off yeah. after you've been shopping and you get in the car, and then everyone uh, takes the Mickey or yeah. points or shouts because you've got your mask on in the car, but you've just forgotten because you've gotten used to it. Yeah, yeah. Um, like it, it's really not that big of a big of a hindrance, but I think yeah. I think that we should accept that for things everyone has to do, mm. masks still need to be there. Um, and then perhaps for things that are that are optional or things that are um, perhaps more likely to spread COVID, whether you wear a mask or not, such as being in a nightclub. Yep. Um, I think we can sort of accept that if the nightclubs are going to be open you don't have to wear a mask in the nightclub or you don't have to wear a mask in the queue to the nightclub. Yeah. Because the very nature of a nightclub is that it's going to transmit COVID much more easily than being in a supermarket. Mm. Um, would be an interesting mechanic though, to, to have masks mandatory in the nightclub. I would, I would be interested to see how that. <laughs> if you like one of those uh, Shakespearean like balls from it, like, uh, it would like, much to do about nothing where they go to the mask party. I can imagine there'd be much ado about nothing going on if everyone was wearing masks. <laughs> I must say, uh, 
Yeah, uh, but on to the, I mean, we've got, I, I, I've listened to a few pros and cons here, and the mass one is absolutely right. It's something that a few people have kicked up a fuss about, actually. Interestingly, a YouGov poll actually said that about 70% of people would be happy to keep mass mandatory, um, which makes me think maybe there's a loud minority on social media that are making a fuss about wearing them, really, when in actual fact, I, I personally, like you've just said, I would leave a shop or public transport, fortunately not driving, um, with a mask on and forget that it's on because it, it didn't bother me too much. But I, I guess we could debate that forever. Um, I guess on the pros, we'll go, we'll go for the, some pros first. Um, you know, it'd be the first country in Europe to embrace freedom in, in, the, in the same sense it was the first country in Europe to start the vaccine programme and that started really well and has continued to do quite well. Um, it'll be, again, looking to kickstart the economy and get ahead of the curve in terms of uh, many of its European counterparts, although you might argue they might need to do that a little bit more than the European counterparts, given the uh, fact that they are outside of the uh, single market now, as it stands with with Brexit. Um, that's for another day. And they also want, uh, also worth mentioning that, well, yeah, essentially what I just said, um, if we got a similar success in the vaccine rollout and we just continue to see this progress day in, day out, week in, week out, then again, you can see that there would be some success there. Any pros really to add to that other than, you know, the, the those kind of ideas? Um, I don't think there's any more real tangible ones. Mm. Um, I Mental think health that, would probably benefit, wouldn't it, for many people? I think, I think perhaps, yeah, mental health is going to be a big benefit. Mm. Uh, perhaps um as part of the this 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 is generally just on the economy side of things but people yeah. might feel perhaps that they're in a position to spend money a bit more mm. um, and, and livelihoods as well livelihoods and industries that were also crippled will hopefully boost it like you term, said yeah so a boost of the economy um, a boost of livelihoods a boost of mental health uh all sort of tied together i think so it will make certain uh, i think it will make certain things easier as well perhaps um just from sort of personal experience yeah. working from home it's some some parts of it are very easy but yeah. some parts of it are very hard yeah i think certain industries where the harder bits uh about working from home yeah are more prevalent might people might find it easier to return to work yeah um or yeah. at least easier when they do return to work okay um, yeah I mean, to be honest, there are a lot of good. The one, the biggest reasons for me are, are around livelihoods, economy, mental health, and they all sort of tie together. And when you look at the success of the vaccine rollout we had as a start by by going ahead with that head first, it worked well. So there is a, there is room for optimism, and I want to stress that, and I want and I want to hope that this is a good thing, uh, you know, because at the end of the day, it affects us all, and I want it. I want to see it succeed. However few cons list now i think is just appropriate to, to balance it out um yep. right I'm seeing the cons list is longer than the pros list well it, <laughs> it's only by one actually um because i could have had one of the pros I didn't add on that list actually but just a quick run through on some of the cons we've been told by scientists that cases could reach up to a hundred thousand could have reached up to a hundred thousand covid cases per day um, if we are allowed to remove all the restrictions and, and kickstart the new normal um, without much caution. Chris Whitty said that winter 
upcoming winter could be very difficult for the NHS because, of course, you're going to have the normal winter flu problems and couple that with the COVID crisis of 100,000 cases per day, the possibility of variants counteracting the vaccine or the possibility even of the vaccines, well, the vaccine rollout for whatever reason slowing down or not keeping up with the rate that it has been going. And if for whatever reason, I don't want to you know, jump into all the reasons, if for whatever reason there's a variant that does become a prominent killer like original coronavirus was or COVID-19 was, then we are almost back to square one in that sense with an overcrowded NHS. Uh, Just to touch on that again, just over 50% of the population has received both jabs, which is quite a way off the 70% needed for the herd immunity. Uh, Although, you know, something more than 70% have had one vaccine. So depending on what you think about that, uh, again, it's up to interpretation. Um, and yeah, basically just touching on the variance thing again, which is what I've already said, and that's and that's listed. Um, again, thoughts generally there, and um, anything you could really add to that? Uh, I was just, yeah, um, I think I think they're pretty. Yeah, I think that they were always going to be the negatives that we'd associate with it. Could we become of. Plague Island? I mean, yeah. So it'll be like uh, Zombie yeah, Island. I don't know about that, but you never know. Yeah. Maybe there's going to be a, a Z variant or something. Um, but I wonder what's so special about the 100,000 cases per day yeah. um, kind of thing. I guess I guess, I guess, guess you once you're infected, you can't become infected again kind of yeah. thing. Um, and it's probably the people, people will recover or uh, die off at a rate that is quicker than new people can become infected at, at 100,000 yeah. uh, cases a day potentially but it's an interesting one i think the pr- the winter one is is quite uh the biggest sort of worry for me mm. especially if like you said the new variants uh come back cuz one of the things that i've perhaps noticed um is i've never had the flu but i have had a, i have had you generally tend to get colds and that sort of thing in winter yeah. And one thing I've noticed and a lot of other people have noticed over the last sort of year, year and a half is that no one's had a cold and very few people have had flu. So that's something that the, the, the lockdown or being isolated has really actually benefited us in a way. But now we're going away from that. We're going to have the standard flu, like you said, and also the COVID Although, um, haven't we been classing flu as COVID to a point? Because it's it's a symptom, isn't it, of coronavirus? Uh, yeah, it was. Yeah, we sort of it's flu-like symptoms. Mm. Uh, maybe I know they're not the same virus, but I, I assume you could uh, refer to COVID as flu plus if you really wanted to. Um, uh, just, on the, on the, I was just going to say though, so hundred thousand cases was a high, was a number that's been sort of forecasted. But again, we've talked about this before. If the rise in cases is astronomical, but the rise in death is minimal, then I guess there's, the, the, yeah, but the in between, I suppose, is hospitalizations, isn't it? So if you're really enough to go to yeah. hospital, but you're not dying, it's still a problem because it is still a problem. It's yeah, gonna, for sure. So um, th- there is that middle there's, ground. There's certain things that uh, perhaps are a negative side effect of having COVID that don't kill you or don't even mean you need to go to hospital yep. potentially 
Um, which whether the vaccine protects you against them, no one's really 100% sure. The vaccines aren't really meant for that. The vaccines are meant so you don't die and you don't get seriously ill. Yeah. Um, and they only the work for six months, don't they? Apparently. Yeah, apparently. Yeah. yeah. Um, which is why everyone's going to get the booster. Um, although mm. I think they said you only need one one booster. Mm. Um, Be interesting. Potentially. So but, generally, though, then, uh, what, what, what I mean, I think people, you hear scientists talk about the case rise like it's deaths. And then you hear yes. the, the, then you hear the other, the other side talk about, you know, rising deaths like, oh, it doesn't really matter, you know, yeah. ignore the cases and the possibility of the science that, that could lead to variants that counter the vaccine. Um, so where do you stand? Um, I think, I think the hospitalizations is a really good, good, good middle ground. Really, it's a good middle yeah. ground. Well, it's yeah, not a good middle it, ground, I, but it's a, it well, is a, it's, a, yeah. it's at middle ground. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah I yeah. think I think it would depend on which sort of genuinely. I think it would depend on which sort of scientist you asked. Mm. Um, I think perhaps if, whether they vote conservative or not. <laughs> <laughs> I think if you asked a, I think if you asked a. Uh, a doctor or someone who worked in the NHS, mm. they would be typically much more concerned about hospitalizations and deaths because that is what they're trying to mm. minimize. But if you yeah. asked, say, a virologist or an immunologist, mm. they'd probably be much more concerned about cases because that's uh, ultimately what gives viruses the power to to grow and to spread and to mutate. Mm. Um, so I think if you and if you asked. Uh, I guess if you asked a chemist or well, you're a chemist, an engineer um, who worked kind in the of. pharmaceutical industry. I'm 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 close enough. Yeah. Well, not really, but I think if you asked a I think if you asked a a chemist or a, an engineer who worked in the pharmaceutical industry, they would probably be more concerned about um, all three. To be honest, because you're in the end, you're trying to pr- use the vaccine to present. Uh, to prevent all three, yeah, realistically. And just, just, just briefly to round this off, then, in your opinion, do you think we will end up in another lockdown this year? Do you know? What? I'm going to say yes. <laughs> I'm going to say yes. Uh, um, I think, I think there's no harm in being mildly pessimistic. No. Um, I've been pessimistic all year. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's no harm in being a bit pessimistic about it, um, and there's certainly less harm than being perhaps overly optimistic. Yeah, I just think uh, this winter, regardless of whether it's everyone at this point, uh, every let's say by winter everyone's yeah. had COVID, okay. but a lot of people are vaccinated. Depending on how good your your vaccine is or how good your immune response is you might still feel kind of ill. Mm. So if the cases are really high and everyone's had, or people have had COVID and they think, I don't want to feel ill, they might just, it might just be a sort of self-imposed sort of, sort of lockdown. You know, everyone yeah. sort of does their own thing over winter anyway. No one, no one goes out uh, except from maybe students. Yeah. Um, everyone sort of battens down the hatches a little bit anyway. Uh, and in combination with the flu, yeah, perhaps, uh, everyone's just going to decide. You know what? I can sit this out for a few more months. 
Yeah, oh yeah, I don't Maybe know. Whenever it's, it's gone to, whenever it's gone to personal uh, decision making, they usually do the opposite. Whether that, yeah, that, yeah, I feel like that perhaps just ignores human nature and the fact that we've all been locked away for eighteen months. But you, te- you tell someone not to think about elephants. What's the first thing they think about? An elephant. You tell someone not to go out when it's locked down. What do half the people want to do? Go out. Exactly. <laughs> That's I don't know. <laughs> I'm going to be pessimistic and say I think we'll have another... Our, whether it will be a full lockdown, I don't know. Mm. I would say another set of restrictions, let's yeah. say. Maybe yeah. we'll just bring masks back and that can be the that can be the new set of restrictions. Interesting. Um, I, I, I am also of the opinion that something will be pulled back a little bit. But I don't know how far it will go. Again, I still think this year is going to be a very, very strange and unpredictable year, much like the whole year has gone so far, really. It's been difficult to really get ahead of or plan for anyway, onto something slightly different. Well, not really, because it's everything COVID-related in some way, isn't it? But uh, talk, talking about this before, uh, other burning issues, um, nearly all Russell Group unis, according to The Times, have said they will adopt blended learning next year with online teaching, uh, and they will not cut fees Essentially, there's been a big push that even though they might have some seminar groups in small groups in person, the majority of the teaching will be done online in respect for the coronavirus and the rising cases, or maybe in respect of teachers who would rather just sit at home and, and talk as opposed to in a, in a lecture hall. I don't know. What I do think is quite surprising, well, not surprising, but shocking is that they plan to do this for how long we don't know, maybe for an entire academic year. I'd, we don't know, at least for the first term, this has been thought by many Russell groups. But the tuition fees will remain the same. It's not on, is it, really? It's not on. No. Um, I think perhaps a very weak argument to defend that would be, uh, well, the degree is still worth the same. Mm. But you're not just paying for that. You're paying to be a member of the university uh, and you have certain restrictions placed on you. If they could like- open nightclubs... If they can open nightclubs, schools have been in effectively all year. We've been told how bad, uh, well, okay. First, we were told how bad uh, online learning was for kids. Mm. Then we were told how it was actually quite good for them. Uh, and now we're back to it being bad for them. Mm. But students are, I think, have the right to be annoyed about that. Yeah, if Kids have been in schools. Um without vaccines, without even the, ch- the hope of a vaccine potentially yet, you're telling people to go back in into, into offices or into work. Yeah, That includes the lecturers, I would presume. Mm-hmm. That includes the researchers. Mm-hmm. If you're a student, it's sort of almost like your job to do your university course and set yourself up for your future. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of a bit of a... Um, I wouldn't say a scam, but I feel like it's it's very unfair on students. It's a scam. Uh, it's just, yeah. It's, it's not. I don't know. It feels it feels dodgy. It feels. Uh, I we'll, it, we'll we'll drop short of the word scam and we'll say it could be open to exploitation for members of staff that don't want to go in uh, and would prefer to work from home when actually it might be beneficial I, for the students for them to go. I believe. Yeah, I think it's. I think it's not particularly fair. At um, least not for the same price. 
Um, at least, uh, yeah, the very. I I would happily say, you know, if if they if they still thought thought it was worth paying a significant fee for, I could kind of. It still takes time. You still take the lecturer's time. You still get resources mm. from the university. You still get to to belong to the university. Mm. Um, your you still get the piece of paper at the end of it, which at the end is what's technically you're there for, yeah, yeah. or at least part of the reason that you're well, there your, for. your degree paper, not like just something your, from the... Yeah, an your degree paper, yeah. yeah. yeah um, so I think I think a subsidy would be fair. Worth noting, though, just as a, just a sort of a little counter-argument, that actually we both know that we, at university there is the option for online learning anyway, which a lot of students do take up. Uh, even when they have full lecture halls, or the option that to is, catch up. That is very true. Um, yeah. Although I would say, uh, yeah, I think we we generally get told how how students who don't turn up to lectures and who do the on and who only watch the recordings don't do as well. But now all of a sudden we're being told that it's just as valuable. Mm. Um, and I would also say, you know, it's kind of. It's kind of like if you try, if you, if you stayed in your house for, uh, let's say, of the day, of a 12 hour day, you stayed in your house for eight hours and yeah. you went outside for two hours. Mm-hmm. That two hours is pretty, you know. But then if you told someone to stay in the house all day for 12 hours, it has, it's totally different kind of thing. Yeah. I would say it's the same sort of thing. Like if you said uh, to students, um, you're not going to any lectures um and you and you actually can't go to them in person for all 20 hours or 15 hours of your lectures a week it's different than them saying oh, okay i'll miss thursday mornings because i've already done that in my a levels and uh and I'm i went out the out last night the, and got home. and i'm going out yeah. with and i went out with the sports team yesterday yeah um and at Lancaster University, the, the sports season got on Wednesday, so that's quite good contextual knowledge <laughs> there, isn't it? Yeah, we, I think. Uh, yeah, I think it's the removal of choice. Yeah, people don't tell us what to do. Oh, Get to that actually after. That'll be good. Um, yeah, so there, there's that one. The brief one. We've touched on this before, but COVID passports for venues uh, apparently were back to save approximately ten thousand lives this year, but they've been denied in UK venues. So you can go into venues without. A, I'm. Yeah. I was just going to say, right, so we're on, say, 30,000 cases, I think. I checked yesterday, it was 30,000 cases. Mm -hmm. And we're on about, like, 20 deaths, Mm -hmm. Um, perhaps. We've been on 20 deaths throughout the entire uh, sort of increase, the sort of rapid increase in cases that we just experienced. Mm. So if I'm wondering how these 10,000 lives have have come about. uh, I think it's over time, isn't it? Uh, if they oh, had suppose, COVID passports yeah. over time, they think it would save approximately 10,000 lives, which is a fair assumption. But of my opinion, and I've said this multiple times on this podcast, I think with you, I think with Adam, um, definitely with Adam, I said um, that because some people who have struggled mentally or who have really severe mental health problems can't conceptualize this, or some people who have uh, this pandemic, and then other people who have fears or phobias of vaccines, other people who have allergic reactions to vaccines, because there's a lot of people with genuine exemptions, it's quite discriminatory to then put that passport in place. In principle, it makes sense because theoretically, we should all, if you know, from if if we're just looking at it from the perspective of myself and you, 
and, yep. and others, we should be saying, well, you should get the vaccine. But quite frankly, and we both know, I, we, we should both know this. Many people should know this. Many people have different exemptions. And while some aren't very legitimate, in fact, yeah, there will be, of course, be some that aren't very legitimate. Some people just won't do it because they can't be bothered. But there will be a lot that are terrified of the vaccine, that are paranoid about the vaccine, that have genuine phobias of the vaccine, that have mental health problems, can't comprehend the pandemic. For all of those reasons, really, I don't, I'm happy really that they're not making more division, I think, with a COVID passport. I think the COVID passport would just create another issue out of something that could yeah. just be managed fairly effectively already. Mm-hmm. Sort of. An honesty system. Have you had both jabs? Yeah. Yes. The majority of people will have had both jabs, I assume. Mm-hmm. And the tiny percentage of the population who haven't or don't want to can sort of just slip through slip through the cracks and sort of do their own thing as they see that they need to manage it. And I don't think they need to be micromanaged by the by a COVID passport system. Mm-hmm. Um, also, yeah. I think it's just another it's just another area of expense that we yeah. probably don't fully fully well we need it even less than test a bit trade. authoritarian as well isn't it i would yeah um perhaps a yeah a little bit uh authoritarian if you're saying if you're if they're gonna say this is freedom day yeah. july 19th freedom day you can do what you want yeah you can't then go putting rules in and say, oh, only in these certain people. Only but I don't. But, but worth noting that I don't think they're backing that, and I, I do agree with that, so that's good. Um, Universal Credit cut £20 a week uplift. So uh, over the pandemic, they had a £20 a week uh, increase for any claimants on Universal Credit. That's now, that's now going to go in the autumn along with the furlough scheme. Um, inevitable, I think, but... 20 is 20 pounds a week really is it was it really necessary i mean that pays for a, a good few meals for that for that person a week it's quite sad really. i, I think so i think i think when you look at the um i think when you look at the amount of money you have to spend uh or the amount of money you get given on universal credit 20 pound a week is actually fairly significant yeah i think the amount of money that the government spends on giving everyone an extra 20 pound a week yeah it's 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 change really isn't it compared to some of the other money that they spend exactly it's um furlough we expected to end sharpish though i suppose I, I i fully understand the furlough scheme ending that is totally fine with me um as an employed worker to... <laughs> as an employee well even as people who um you only get furlough if you have if you've had a job that you haven't been able to go to right yeah yeah fair. So you're just going to be able to go back to your job well, not uh, all, not everybody. It's worth noting. I think a lot of people they've actually called them sort of job. For many people, these jobs are almost dead jobs now because of industries that have been hit, because employee numbers are being cut, because the job the workload just simply isn't there. So for bad. a lot of people, it will actually be. I mean, uh, with with at uh, I I I work at content creation and marketing with with debt advice firm, and the debt advice firm are expecting a really big surge in people who are in really bad problem debt at the end of the furlough scheme, because while they are now currently paying off their debts at an affordable rate, they will have nothing to pay off any existing debts with once that um, furlough scheme gets cut. Yep. And it will leave a lot of people in a lot of trouble. Uh, but again, like you say, it's not something you can necessarily do 
for it, well, forever, essentially, um, even though most of Europe are doing it anyway and might do it for longer, it, it doesn't, it's not really sustainable, especially if you want to make ground on coming out of the situation that you're in. I think also they've given, they've given people time to plan. I think, I think if, I know, I know certain industries are uh, perhaps a lot more susceptible to it than others. Um, but I think, I think it's been fairly easy to identify if you are in one of those industries and at least formulate some sort of plan. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they've given us, I guess, a quarter's notice mm-hmm. um, on stuff. So I would say, I'd say I can understand them dropping the furlough, but the universal credit thing is really uh, petty. Yeah, it's yeah, because I think it was I think it was seventy six pounds a week originally, and then it went up to ninety six. Which is again, I think the thing with universal credit is it's never ever ever enough to live on from a benefit system, unless there obviously are loopholes to it, and there's obviously different caveats for different circumstances, but. Th- theoretically it's like half a crutch you know you need to yeah. find the rest of it elsewhere and you need to be able the, i mean really you need to be doing a part-time job alongside that now i get that you don't want a, you don't want a luxury benefit system because if you do have a luxury benefit system that pays better than certain jobs then you're going to get a heck of a lot of people that are like well i don't want to go into this job however uh, it, 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 and there seems to be quite a lot of used to always when I was growing up, there was a lot of coverage on that that people are milking the benefits of it, and there are ways to milk it. Don't get me wrong, there are ways to get around it, to get loopholes, and to take advantage of the system. However, generally, it's not particularly advantageous economically, and it's that twenty pound, yeah, and that it's not easy, and that twenty pound uplift was simply to get a few more meals. But I, I agree with you. I, I I'm not yeah. a fan. Not I think. So we've both had universal credit before, right? Briefly, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's during, not, during the it's pandemic, not easy to. Uh, it's it's not easy to like. I don't want to say cheat your way into it, but like, no. there is some level of maintenance. It takes about five weeks or four weeks, doesn't it, before you can even get your first payment? Yeah, there is some level of maintenance, like effort on your part required, and um, perhaps they they. I was in the lowest bracket because I had some savings. Um, 1.5 million. Although what was quite funny actually was the savings were not in cash. They were not in spendable cash. They were in a help to buy ISA, government incentivized scheme, which you get penalized for spending. Really? Apparently counts as as spendable income in the uh, eyes of the DWP, which is quite funny really. But I would say, I would say, you're, you're never going to put yourself at a massive advantage by financially anyway, by claiming benefits. No. So it's kind of hard. The only, the only time I would see someone, the only, the only real cheat I could see is if someone could claim benefits and work a full-time job. Yes. Um, at which case, yeah, you're probably not declaring or you get essentially the employer should actually in that situation be yeah. putting your uh, details forward uh, and payments forward. But, but if, if they, they gave you a, uh, yeah, if they, yeah, your employer should sort it out, I feel like, because if you, <laughs> all, all you should have to do is just give everyone who isn't on, isn't uh, working with taxable income, just give them a different tax code. Yeah. And no, then sure. you're, and then ask their employer for the tax code. And if yeah. it's not the benefits one, but is, is that going to, is, is giving an extra, is giving everyone an extra 20 pound or even an extra 30 or 40 pound a week really gonna 
uh, upset the apple cart with respect to uh, the number of people cheating benefits or the number of people claiming who mm-hmm. perhaps shouldn't be eligible. I don't think so. And I think that 20 quid is actually a massive difference. I know if, like, if you try to, so just being at uni, for example, if you if you have a week where you spend say let's say you try and live off 50 quid a week right yeah that's you have to kind of penny pinch a little bit on that uh excluding rent obviously but you you with certain things like if you have a car Mm. um or if you go out and if you enjoy social activities you have to penny pinch a little bit Mm -hmm. but you can do 50 quid but if you up that to 70 quid you can start saving a tenner a week And stuff like it's it's the little margin on top of everything that gives you opportunity to buy luxuries or to save a little bit. Mm. Um, and I think that's really sort of overlooked mm. as part of this twenty quid. That's uh, a fair point. But... Fair point. On the other one, though, so the other end. Of, well, it's not the other end of the scale, really. There's, I mean, the pension scheme in the UK, the state pension scheme, has been lambasted for a long time. But Rishi Sunak's plan was to. Uh, put eight uh, percent of the budget towards pensions. Eight percent pensions rise. Um, sorry, eight percent pensions rise. Uh, thought up by Ritty Sunak, but been given a rethink. That eight that eight percent rise will be looking at about um three billion pounds more as to, attributed to state pensions. This has been thought to be a triple lock scheme, which has been described as the eight percent rise. Pensions will come out of wages through taxes, and obviously it will affect the taxpayer, which could affect the young people in favour of the older people. And that's one way it's been described, and the uh, another way has been described. So left-wing commentator Rowan Jones quite thinks it's a good thing. It's a good sustainable measure if we can put it through because it's looking after people who have worked for a long time, and hopefully by keeping it at that level we are pushing for a future where when we get to state pension age, we have more in the state pension than is currently available in the state pension. But then the other side of the coin, Tom Harwood, uh, right-wing commentator, GB News, again, uh, quite a lovely guy, actually, both both respectable political commentators. He argues that it's actually disenfranchising the younger people who want to make a success of themselves by getting them taxed more, taking more money out. uh, And in his words, it's, it's sort of disenfranchising capitalism, what well, not capitalism as such, but entrepreneurial gains and and you know individual advancement economically. Uh, what are your thoughts? I mean, I, worth noting that our pension system is one of the lowest in Europe and is quite pathetic, really. Uh, which is why agree. many people have private pensions. I would agree with the latter, with the the latter political commentator's opinion. I think. Big up Tom think- Harwood. I think uh, the pe- yeah the state pension is one of the worst in Europe. Yeah. Um, but the only reason it's been, or, or not the only reason, but a reason the state pension system is not there is because a lot of people got private pensions. Yeah. And the private pensions that people used to get are much much better. They're much. They were much. The companies budgeted for them better than the pensions we have now. Mm-hmm. Um. Even in even in sort of like a even in sort of like a working class uh, or a, a a good level working class role, mm-hmm. the pension you got was pretty good, I believe, mm-hmm. um, and it does decrease the reliance on the state pension. Now, that's not to say that um, the state pension doesn't need to be increased or the state pension's 
fine as it is. Um, but I think if you're gonna if you're gonna increase state pensions now for mm. people who perhaps had the best opportunity with private pensions at mm-hmm. the expense of young people who have to who will have to actually uh, invest more in their own pensions uh, in their earlier years. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's the wrong approach. Mm. Yeah, no, you make um, a fair point. Um, but again, worth noting that it's still a very low stake pension. Uh, I mean, I, I practically see both sides really, so I'll fence it on this one. But um, I think yeah, um, it's uh, just, it go. I was just going to say, just to uh, just to, I, I know the state pension's really low, mm. um, but I was going to say perhaps I think at the moment everyone can get the state pension, right? Mm-hmm. Even if you have a private one mm-hmm. uh, after after you reach the eligible age, perhaps a reassessment could be done similar to the universal credit system or at least making it similar to the universal credit system, where if you have a certain level of sustainable income with a private pension, mm. you don't get the state pension, and yeah. the pot can be shared out a bit more to people who who really need it, can get a livable pension, and the people who don't really need it don't really see any difference because the amount they got paid was relatively low anyway. I, I, yeah, just for context, state pension per week's roughly roughly around the hundred pounds it's quite you can't really live on that with all the things that you've got to in terms of in terms of your bills in terms yeah. of your attack you can't you can't live never mind live a happy can't, luscious retirement yeah. you can't really you can't, live you can't live on that with no savings and you can't no. live on that if you own your own house no. i would say i think no. the only time perhaps so i know if you're if you're old and you can't afford your own care and you go in a care home, the government can subsidize it. But again, again, that's just a bleak. But, but then that's just end. that's yeah, that's a bleak end. And then it's effectively a hundred pound spending money kind of thing. Mm. Like hundred quid's enough spending money, but it's not enough to live off. Yeah, no, it's not. Um, the care, the care for me, the care industry in the UK is awful. The it is awful. the way it's done, the fact that if you have savings, that you're paying for it. Uh, and it's an absolute fortune. Um, it's not, yeah. It's like it, I think it cost my grandma like fourteen hundred quid a week or something ridiculous. It's outrageous. Um, and that needs a complete overhaul. But yeah, no, I, I think there needs to be a compromise somewhere because there will be, I imagine, people who aren't as savvy with private pensions. I mean, for us right now, it doesn't really matter too much. Of course, it's nice to be aware, but it doesn't matter too much at this point. Um, Obviously, as we get older, the more it matters, the more it matters. And then when we're in our 50s, it's all, yeah. oh, how much have you got in this? How much have you got? But yeah. for people who maybe gone through that, older people, maybe relying on state pensions, weren't as savvy with, I mean, technology has become an in thing now where you can actually see what's in the pot more readily. But for people yeah. who didn't really adapt to that, it's it's quite a scary prospect uh, and not having that savviness. So we, there needs to be a bit of a compromise there, I, I think a little bit. It needs to be a bit more respect. But again, it all comes back, doesn't it, to who's going to pay for that. Now, again, it's all about the distribution of the of the budget as well. We know how I can I can list I have a list as long as my arm of things that could have been spent better, big sums that could have been spent better just in this pandemic. But in the reality is, and it is and it is quite sad. But the reality is, it will be the likes of ourselves making that payment. It won't be, you know, the government themselves redistributing the money better because they'll continue yeah. to make the same financial mistakes with our 
taxpayers' money. And then I suppose that's where you'll get your opposition to it. So I want you to like, comment, subscribe, and part two will be out shortly in the week, or later in the week, actually. It's been that long that we've had to push this into two parts. Take care, stay safe, and thanks for listening.